I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to the Magnificast, the podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I am your co-host, Dean Detloff. And I'm your other co-host, and I'm full of stuffing and mashed potatoes, Matt Bernico. It's Thanksgiving, y'all. It's American Thanksgiving, I guess, is what I'm here to say. That's right. I didn't get the day off, is what that means. <laughs> yeah, well, that's fine. <laughs> we're all, uh, on, on this side of the border, we're all sleepy and tired. And... Well, I got that. I got that part. Of uh, this holiday, oh, okay. sleeping tired cool. for sure. Uh, but that's right, folks. Matt is back on the other side of the border, um, and here I am, still on this one. So our audio quality is back to normal. <laughs> Congrats, to all of you. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know, Matt. What was your uh, Thanksgiving like? Uh, it was great. Um, had all the uh, traditional foods, and um, there were a thousand little kids running around. Honestly, um, pretty nice. Last year, we skipped the whole thing because of COVID. I mean, COVID's still a thing, clearly, but uh, more people are vaccinated and a little bit safer to gather. So we did it. And that was that was nice. Screaming kids and all. <laughs> cool. Uh, I'm happy for you guys. Um, I was uh, just uh, looking out the virtual window, I guess. Everyone having a good time in uh, the U.S. <laughs> Um, we got the virtual windows, a great, a great euphemism for looking at Twitter. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. We, uh, you know, we have Thanksgiving in October in Canada and it is the weirdest thing in the world to have Thanksgiving before Halloween. And then like you do that, then you have Halloween and then there's just nothing till Christmas. And you're like, okay, I guess, I guess it's just, uh, the Christmas time starting after Halloween. <laughs> anyway, uh, we're not talking about any of that this time around. We're talking about human rights. Who's got them? Who needs them? Who wants them? Who, who's doing what with them? Uh, it is a really wild topic I've been reading a lot about in the last uh, few weeks, um, especially, and uh, motivated by all kinds of things we'll probably talk about in this episode. I think maybe the the primary reason I thought it might be a good idea for us to talk about it is I've been really struck by how human rights language is kind of the primary political language that governs the global order, right? Like, no matter how we talk about politics, it's the frame of reference that we have um, for better or for worse, I guess, is up for you to decide. Uh, it's the frame of reference we have to sort of adjudicate, you know, I don't know what happens to people and people use them on both sides. Right. So like the United States is always concerned about human rights uh, and it bullies other countries <laughs> using that language. Uh, but at the same time, um, social movements and popular movements also talk about human rights. 
and uh, what is being denied to them and so on. So it's a kind of contested field of language and a fun thing to figure out and sort out and think through. Um, that's what we're going to do in this episode. Talk about human rights. That's right, folks. We're finally going to tackle the thing that's in everyone's mind, human rights and what's <laughs> going on there from a sort of political philosophy point of view. Um, yeah, it is a really interesting question. Um, I was, uh, before we just started recording this, I was reminiscing for a minute that uh, uh, back in the, the early days of my master's degree, uh, this is where I spent most of my time, is in a, a political philosophy department that was really concerned with human rights and like what that meant. And uh, man, analytic political philosophy, it's boring. But this is uh, this is like kind of an interesting way to re- revisit some of those ideas about uh, human rights and whatnot. It's it's cool. I mean, just like you said, Dean, like uh, countries like the United States are really concerned about um, about human rights or they say they are. And then so are activists or so are organizations like, you know, the IMF. They're very concerned with uh, <laughs> with uh, human rights. And so are, um, you know, anti-debt activists. Uh, so I don't know. It's good to kind of think through like what exactly all of that means. Um, to, to do that, we rounded up a handful of different characters to uh, kind of speak into the situation. And uh, some of them are going to be familiar, some of them less so. So uh, we'll talk about Marx in this episode and what he thinks about uh, rights, even though that's kind of a, a complicated topic for Marx. Uh, we got Alistair McIntyre, we got Simone Weil, and then also um, a lot of what we're going to talk about is coming from a book called What's Wrong with Rights by Rada D'Souza, which is a uh, kind of a neat book, a pretty challenging one. I uh, have to admit, I haven't read it all, but I have skipped around and read a, ch- a chunk of it, I would say, <laughs> but it's pretty cool. Um, <laughs> one part I did really like about the book is that tension between like the IMF supporting human rights and also, you know, debt activists mm-hmm. or whatever. Uh, she has a point where she says, you know, it's like the lion has laid down with the lamb. Um, <laughs> you know, it's like these, uh, the, uh, an incredibly uh, predatory organization has uh, cares about the exact same thing that activists care about. But maybe there's more at stake here. Or maybe there's more going on. And uh, it's a really funny idea. So uh, let's get into it, Dean. What's 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 right about human rights or what's wrong about human rights? <laughs> yeah, it's a great question. Um, I think it is really interesting to kind of come at this issue from a few different vantage points, right? Like philosophy is one you have to deal with because what are human rights? They are made up. That's the short of it. I think whether you like them or not, people made them up and the way that we think about them and sort of use them depends on all kinds of other stuff that we think, right? What do we think human beings are? What do we think justices and how human rights kind of get triangulated in those conversations? That's one good angle. Um, The other angle, though, and the one I've been kind of thinking about most is in social movements themselves, like in practice. Uh, What do human rights actually do? Like, what's the function of them in the world? Um, What do they allow you to do? What do they maybe stop you from doing and so on? Um, And uh, I I work for a human rights based kind of organization. It comes out of the Catholic tradition, development of peace, but uh, it also, um, you know, uh, like everybody, it, it borrows from human rights language to make strong campaigns and figure out what to do uh, as we advocate for people in the global south and, and so on. So I think maybe those are two ways in that we can find uh, here. One might be kind of talking conceptually about human rights, and then the other is sort of tracking how they actually work themselves out on the ground. Um so maybe let's start with the philosophy bit. <laughs> let's start uh, abstractly, and then we'll work our way down into the the concrete. Um, 
human rights, what are they? I think that's a really important question. You know, anytime someone starts talking about a, a, a concept like rights, I think it's always helpful to kind of think historically and genealogically. Like when you live in a, a rights-based society, it's easy to assume these are just natural features of the world, right? That we, we grow up hearing about human rights all the time, so therefore people must have them. They're out in the world to be discovered <laughs> by you and other people, right? It's just kind of a feature of the world. But in fact, you know, it's pretty recent, actually, that humans really thought they had rights in the first place. I mean, some people try to locate their origins back in, like, ancient Rome and stuff like that. And I don't know, maybe there's something to all of that. But, like, the way we understand rights today is not that, <laughs> no matter what. Uh, it has sort of really changed, especially, and, and emerged with the context of capitalism itself. And rights are all kind of bound up in that the way we think philosophically. So, Matt, maybe we could just do a little bit of uh, thinking about rights, what they are, where they come from. I don't know, Matt, you were in this wild political science department. <laughs> what are human rights? Where did we get them? What do they do? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, it always depends on who you're asking, right? Um, you know, maybe maybe God gave us these rights and there's nothing you can do about them or maybe a constitution grants you them and there's something you could do about them. <laughs> um, the, those are the two things that you'll hear people <laughs> you'll hear people say. I mean, um, uh, if God gives you inalienable rights, uh, boy, do we do a bad job of respecting those. But um, <laughs> just uh, that's one way to look at it, I guess. So anyways, a right is a thing that uh, basically your government grants you that you have the ability to do, right? It's a claim about liberty and um, sort of where your responsibility begins and ends in the world. Um, but, you know, it, when when you're talking about it in the, like, the scope of, like, individual beings, it is hard to kind of, like, see maybe, like, the, the larger contours around it, like, maybe, like, what's really at stake with those things, right? Like, my right to bear arms or whatever is, you know, a decision that I'm making for myself or whatever. And I don't know who cares. <laughs> I mean, a lot of people care. It's actually very important. But, you know, like when we're talking about like macroeconomic trends or we're talking about social movements, it's like that's an individual decision that I'm making for myself or for my family or whatever. But there's a larger conversation going around about rights that I think is actually way more fascinating, especially when it comes to economics. Like these things are pretty connected so uh, Rada Souza, the, the book that we've been talking about, What's Wrong with Rights, um, it starts off as genealogy, tracing it pretty closely to the, like, um, just to, to capitalism, basically, the transition from feudalism to capitalism. I mean, that particular, like, uh, move from one political economy to another is very complicated and not, like, a clear demarcation, I think, even within, like, you know, the, within like the materialist conception of economics. But all that being said, um, you know, the the movement where things like land and water and like, you know, the, those big types of things can be commodified. That's a moment where the the modern concept of, of rights really comes into play, right? That you have the right to, to claim land, that you have the right to claim a certain body of water, that you have the sort of like personal right to, to you know, own this thing, <laughs> you know? Um, Radha Souza, uh, she draws out all these really interesting indigenous connections throughout the book where, you know, there's this kind of alternate way of thinking about it, sort of, a, I guess, a pre-capitalist way of thinking about, um, about like water and, uh, and indigenous land where it's just like, um, you know, these things are our common responsibility. You can't own them. 
but uh, capitalism says otherwise. And that is the, the, the birth of, of rights in a really important way that you can, in fact, own a chunk of land. <laughs> so, um, okay, there, so there are rights like, you know, the freedom of speech, the, freedom, the right to bear arms or whatever, all of these things. There are rights and there's something really important about them. Um, but when we want to start thinking about um, the philosophical side of things or like the larger macroeconomic trends, we got to think about the the right to own land. That's like the first building block. That's a, <laughs> that's how you get into that good that good Marxist dialectic, I think. Yeah, exactly. I mean, rights are, as I said a minute ago, kind of the way that we, I guess, just learn to think about the world. But what's helpful about a tradition like Marxism and, and others, too, but Marxism in particular, I think, is it encourages us to ask, OK, but like, where does that way of thinking emerge or what are the... Uh, socioeconomic conditions underneath that kind of language and how do they affect how that language gets deployed or used? Who does it benefit and so on? And when you ask those kinds of questions, it kind of like cuts through the uh, the more abstract questions of like, what does it mean to be a rights-bearing individual in some kind of like ontological sense to use a boring philosophy term, right? Like, uh, like you mentioned, you know, did God give us inalienable rights? Well, maybe God did, and maybe God didn't. But we live in a world where rights appear in this particular way. And you need to kind of attend to the material world and how it's put together if you want to figure out what rights really are in a functional way, right? Like what they really are in terms of uh, things that have bearing on our life, and like things that kind of filter us through them in these weird ways. Uh, one thing I really like about Rada D'Souza's book is, uh, she, she looks at rights in that materialist way, but in lots of different, um, uh, contexts. So like you were just saying, Matt, you know, you have to, if you want to get capitalism going, you have to start thinking about things like property rights, right? Which don't exist really in a meaningful way, or at least in the same way before capitalism emerges, uh, property rights have to be enforceable. You know, we talk all this time, all the time on this podcast about the emergence of capitalism and the process of enclosure, right? A process involving land where there's a bunch of communal land, everybody gets to use it and share it. And at a certain point, a rich person comes along and starts building a bunch of fences and they say, this is my land in particular. I have the rights to this property and you don't anymore, right? So you have to have that kind of stuff in order to get capitalism going. Uh, Rada D'Souza has this really cool way of uh, talking about rights and like social contracts. Um, so you can put your big Enlightenment philosophy thinking cap on, I guess, for this one. <laughs> um, I'll read this uh, quote here. She says, When rights are brought down from the exalted world of liberal critique in the battlefield of ideas to the world of capitalism, it becomes apparent what rights actually do or have done in the world. They create contracting subjects and endow them freedom of exchange. Rights are located within social relations, not outside of them. Pre-capitalist societies validated social norms entailed in social relationships by drawing on transcendental sources, God, traditions, ancestors, or whatever. Capitalism substitutes transcendental sources with law to validate social relations. So there's lots more to say about it, but I really like that really simple way of putting it, right? Like in medieval society or something, well, the king gets to have a bunch of land because the king is the divine um, ruler, right? The divinely appointed ruler. Uh, the king rules literally by divine right, right? That's where it comes from. Uh, whereas in capitalism, there's this kind of um, 
uh, ability to make contracts outside of those kinds of transcendental sources. And I think this also gets to the the weird, like, progressive and damaging aspects of capitalism that Marx is always talking about, right? Like, uh, there's something you can see that's probably a little bit liberating about something like that, to be able to uh, reject something like the divine right of kings and say, instead... We have the freedom to to exchange outside of these uh, cosmologies or other ways of thinking. Uh, but at the same time, um, those particular contracts set up new forms of exploitation and domination. And uh, rights are all kind of mixed up in that extremely weird uh, transition phase. Yeah, that's right. Um, man, uh, this book is rad. I'm all about it, actually. <laughs> um, <laughs> very interesting. Yeah, I, so... Noting that, uh, like the the right to own property, like kind of that, in, in a way that sort of circumvents the uh, the divine right of the king or whatever, right to loan it out to feudal lords and and take care of it or whatever. To note that as a transition is actually really important because not only is it like a new way to alienate land from other people, um, to put it in that way, but it's also part of like um, it's part of the way that capitalism ends up sort of subverting the entire feudal the feudal political order so you know in, in creating a, a different type of state as well uh that practices a different type of power um from the rada de souza book there's another quote that just says uh that puts like this i think it's good the modern concept of rights owes its birth to that moment when land was transformed into a commodity and hundreds and thousands of people were evicted from their places that they called their homeland right so it's um not only is it uh about uh like a different type of ownership, but it's also about the eviction of people who were there. It's like uh, the birth of extraction and um, a state power that will back that type of extraction up. Right. And I think too, there is, there's a ton of really interesting research in Marxist historiography on how capitalism gets going. And it, you know, it's a big interpretive problem. You can get in the weeds with it. Marxists love to debate what makes capitalism capitalism as distinct from feudalism and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but one thing I've always found compelling is actually tying capitalism to the transformation that happens around land in particular. And Rada D'Souza talks a lot about it in here, too. So maybe that's why I like this book so much. But uh, um, <laughs> you get it also. There's another great scholar, uh, Ellen Meeksons Wood. Uh, she has this um, kind of argument about like what makes capitalist imperialism different from ancient imperialism. And one thing that she ties it to is this obsession with like, treating the land as something that has to have its productivity maximized. So in the process, for instance, of England uh, colonizing Ireland, one way that the the British sort of, um, uh, well, did that, accomplish that, was by taking the land, surveying the land, and then saying something like, well, this particular Irish farmer is obviously not good at farming because the land isn't putting out as much as it could. So we should clearly homestead it with a, a British farmer who is capable of really maximizing the profit of that land. And that's what really gives them the right to it. They have a right to it precisely because they can make it profitable, right, in a capitalist way. Um, and that kind of logic got exported all around the world, especially in places like the U.S. and Canada, right? And, and that's bound up in all this property rights stuff as well. You can get a right to the property if you can prove that you are capable of uh, turning it into something else, turning it into, you know, something that can make commodities and property and so on. 
So I think there's something to that that really matters with uh, the emergence of rights language too, right? That uh, when we think about human rights, we often, well, let's say just rights in a, in a more general way. When we think about rights, we probably think of things like the Constitution, the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, other kinds of rights you might imagine. Um, when we think about rights that way, it's easy to kind of see them as abstract or something. Uh, but when we think about something like property rights, it actually uh, makes us, well, it makes me do a double take about rights language in general <laughs> and, and just think harder about you know, if that's the context out of which rights language emerge, um, then what else are we saying about the human when we start talking about things like human rights and so on? Yeah, I mean, it's such an easy thing, especially in activist spaces, to get really, like, bogged down in the rights conversation. Because, I mean, there are so many rights that are actually really important to activism. Like, I mean, speaking from the perspective of the labor movement, right, like, the right to strike is really important. <laughs> it's, like, the big one. Um it's if you don't have the right to strike, you have no way to hold capital accountable in any way and all, all these kinds of things. Um, but you're but you're right. I mean, still, at the end of the day, like the genealogy behind rights kind of comes from um, comes from property relations. So it, it is complicated where you have to be kind of cognizant that like the the system that created the whole rights language as a whole is the system. You know, it's capitalism, right? It's this whole the sense of which. Um, uh, of, of course, like activists are um, really interested in human rights, but um, but to uphold them like absolutely or something is also to uphold capitalism in a in a way that ends up being counterproductive, right? You uh, you want human rights, you want to be you want people to be respected in um, you know particular ways where they aren't trodden all over, but in doing so, at the end of the day, you have to kind of like uphold the, the whole the whole project, which becomes kind of problematic. Yeah, it's an interesting and sticky thing, and we'll make it more complicated as we go, I think. Um, yeah. But uh, one other thing I'll just say about how cool this book is, uh, there's a really great couple of chapters on rights and imperialism in particular. So one other piece about rights is when we think about rights, we our, our mind goes to, like, I don't know, whatever Thomas Jefferson thought human rights were, right? <laughs> whatever the, the writers of the Constitution thought human rights could be. Um, but that kind of document was also written in a different political economy than ours today, which is a very weird, globalized, financialized, uh, debt-driven capitalism. Um, and what's really neat about her book in particular is she also connects the emergence, like, I guess, not the emergence, the, the kind of, there, there was a transformation in rights language in her story in the 20th century. And uh, all of a sudden, people had rights to all kinds of stuff in our kind of imagination that nobody would have thought they had rights to before the 20th century. Um, so not just things like right to a right to vote or a right to life, liberty and whatever, but rights to lots of other stuff. Um, and she says that sort of way of kind of expanding rights language uh, is sort of parallel to or coincidental with like a massive debt crisis around the world. And uh, the construction of global imperialism uh, in a, a big, big way, a, a financialized way, starting in like the 70s and 80s. And I think that's really compelling, too, to kind of see the I mean, I don't know. She, as you can imagine, does not like rights language <laughs> and presents a good, compelling picture of it. I think maybe there's a little more to the story, but. Uh, she does give a really interesting sort of suggestive read that says, could it be that this proliferation of rights language is kind of symptomatic 
of uh, imperialism's attempt to build itself. And I think no matter what you make of her thesis about rights in a general way, uh, she's absolutely correct that rights do get used in a specific way in imperialism in all the ways that she talks about. So it's a really, really valuable way of kind of putting together, you know, that contradiction you mentioned earlier, Matt, like how is it that the uh, the IMF really cares about human rights and nevertheless uh, all these people in countries that have been brutalized by the IMF are fighting for their human rights, right? That contradiction makes more sense in the story that she tells. Yeah, or, or even to put it really starkly in American history, like um, having a rights-based society did not stop slavery from Yeah, happening, exactly. Right, exactly. or it, it probably wasn't actually possible without it. So I don't, I don't know. It, it is a it is a sticky situation, a complicated story, um, but I think it's actually a really helpful type of criticism to bring to this. Um, and and uh, I, I guess the answer to let me hit, let's say up here at the at the front of the show too, the answer is not to say like let's throw out all of the right, like let's throw out a rights based society, rights are bad or or whatever. Like it's not that necessarily. It's just that they're extremely complicated mm-hmm. and. Um, deserve some more critical thought. Um, so let me let me pivot the conversation here a little bit and read another quote from Rada D'Souza about uh, what she thinks about rights. Um, so she writes this in the first chapter. <laughs> <laughs> Question about rights is usually framed as, what do we want rights to do in our world? Consequently, the answer leads to aspirational statements that are disconnected from a comprehensive understanding of the way the world works and the complicity of right claims in it the various actors, mechanisms, and processes that drive the trajectory of rights. So the thing here is that, like, we're always asking, like, what do, what do we want, you know, like, um, the UN or whatever says that the internet is a basic human right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, like, cool, <laughs> I guess. And But that's, like, that's kind of the wrong, the wrong question that she uh, is spurring us on to ask, right? Not what rights do we want in the world. Uh, but like what it is we want our rights to do or how we want them to act or how we want them to be in tension or in contradistinction to other movements in the world. Um, you know, uh, like, do you want the right to <laughs> the right to have food or do you want food directly? <laughs> I guess mm-hmm. is kind of like one way of putting it, right? Like having the right to food means that like, well, I mean, you have the right to strive to get food in the world to, you know, get a job and then to pay for it. Or do you want a society where people just have food Mm -hmm. Two two different ways of thinking about, you know, what a a certain right could mean. Um, But the question shouldn't be, I mean, what do we want? What, what rights do we want? Fine. I guess let's ask it for sure. We want the internet. I mean, I, (laughs) Um, but like, what do we want that to really, like, how do we want that to act in the world? Or like, what, what does that specifically mean within the larger context of, um, political praxis, um, and, you know, like just living, uh, I think it's a, it's a helpful, um, you know, it's like, it's just like a, a deeper, a deeper look at like, maybe like what this rights-based language could mean or like what we can do with it. Yeah, I think so. I really like as well, uh, kind of leaning into something you just said too. Rada D'Souza pulls out um, a little more of that tension between the right to something and just getting something later in her book as well. She says uh, in the conclusion, uh, what did the socialists and freedom fighters and anti-colonial movements do? They demanded the real thing. Food, not right to food. National independence, not right to independence. Peace, not right to peace. Debt repudiation, not forgiveness. Uh, And I think there's something very compelling about that, right? Like, um, we don't want a right to housing. We want to be housed. Like, that is a pretty different way of putting it. Um, 
And she also says somewhere else in the book that Wright's language is kind of promissory language or aspirational mm-hmm. language, right? It's uh, if you have a right to something like you were just saying too, Matt, you can you can strive after it. You can go toward it, try to get it and so on. But the idea that you can be guaranteed a chance to strive towards something is not the same thing as having it. And, you know, maybe there are some things where it's like, sure, we 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 can't guarantee that you can have this thing in the world and it can be you can have your right to (laughs) to aspire to it or something. But when it comes to basic necessities like, you know, a uh, genuinely livable wage uh, shelter that is comfortable, legitimate and safe and secure and so on. Um, food and clothing, those kinds of basic necessities uh, for human beings to to live. Uh, those aren't things that people should have rights to such that those rights could be denied. <laughs> they are things that mm-hmm. people either do or do not have. And it is like as simple as that. And I think that is actually, you know, a pretty profound way of kind of, uh, I guess, uh, shaking up that picture of rights a little bit. Totally. Uh, I think that it's it's uh, <laughs> it is right to note about the uh, the promissory nature of um, like liberal uh, and human rights. I think that's a good way of, of putting it. Um, wh- one more D'Souza uh, quote here. I think that kind of hammers this one. Uh, she says the resilience of liberalism and rights in the imaginations of social movements lies in its ability to sustain the belief that sentiments can be unproblematically translated into political action. I think it's a good note, right? Like it, it's um I guess this is the problem with idealism always and and not in the uh um wouldn't it be nice we lived in a great world sense of idealism by I mean in like the uh the philosophical and political <laughs> way of, of thinking about idealism that like uh you know you start from ideas first and then you move towards practice or something. This, this is the problem. I mean, you can't. It's it's very complicated to move from an idea to praxis. This is the whole pro- project of like so many political philosophers, you know, like how do you, of course you can think the right solution. You can think an idea, but like how do you translate that idea into practice is always very hard and, and rights, um, definitely the case. It's very hard, right? I mean, um, whatever. I mean, we have all kinds of rights that are sort of promissory in, uh, in the United States. And a lot of times they just aren't delivered upon because I don't know how, how does it happen? It's not really, uh, it's not really considered. I mean, the UN is so easy to pick on because they, you know, they like say things are human rights at this like really grand scale, sort of like, you know, the the global scale. And of course, like they don't have anything, any way to back that up. It's just like, well, people have um, Internet as a human right. But like, how do you move that? How do you move that to actual political action? There's so much tension. There's so much friction. You can't just you can't just do it. So it's kind of good to get this other perspective, I think, about the materiality involved in rights. And, and maybe there's like a, a better way to think about all of this in general. Yeah, um, I think let's come back to I'm going to I'm going to try to stand up for rights a little bit later on, but not before making it more complicated. Um, yeah. Yeah. So. All right. We've been talking about Rada D'Souza and maybe uh, her, her pointing out, I guess, um, uh, pulling the rug out from under rights, making them complicated, showing where they fail, and so on. There's some other really interesting ways that rights have been challenged philosophically, maybe not from kind of that materialist perspective, but in some interesting ways in the Christian tradition as well. So rights also genealogically come out of Christian societies, right? Christian Europeans made up rights language by and large. Um, and uh, that's that's certainly one thing. 
<laughs> for sure. And there are, are also some Christian philosophers or theologians today that are super invested in it. Like uh, the first time I ever really thought about human rights was in an undergrad philosophy class where I had to read uh, Nicholas Walterthorpe's book, Justice, which is his big argument for why human rights are good and important and rooted in a, a Christian tradition. So like they're still out there doing it right. Still thinking about that. Um, and it's a, a, an important piece of even like Catholic social teaching. Uh, we talk about human rights all the time. Pope Francis is always going on about them. So, you know, we'll come back to it. But I think the way that rights have been challenged or made more complicated, too, in the Christian tradition is really interesting. So most famously, for me at least, uh, Alistair McIntyre, a Catholic person who's very weird and uh, complicated and would take a long time to explain. Nevertheless, uh, he is a super influential philosopher. Um, he's really influenced by Aristotle and Thomas Aquinas. He wrote a big book called After Virtue a long time ago, where he tried to kind of explain that Aristotle isn't um, it's an old news, but could still have some cool stuff to say. And famously in that book, he has a critique of human rights that is, um, again, maybe not like totally on the mark, but pretty compelling. Um, in it, he <laughs> says that uh, there's no such thing as rights. Um, that he, It's like as simple as that. Uh, he chucks them up to just kind of like fantastical things, just like other fantastical things that people believe in. And he has a pretty sophisticated uh, way of trying to argue for it that I guess you can read. But I think the the real key for him is that rights are a human fiction that uh, can't really ground themselves in anything uh, outside that would like make them really useful or, or kind of significant. And so what you end up having is these kind of irreconcilable differences or conflicts between uh, rights bearing people or like rights in our imagination. So, for example, like. Uh, let's say um, somebody has the like, let's say a company has the right to dig up land for oil underneath it. But somebody else, uh, a farmer or an indigenous community or whatever, has the rights to that land itself. Um, and, you know, a court has to basically decide whose rights are going to win out. And at the end of the day, somebody is going to say that their rights were not respected. And like, probably they'll be correct, <laughs> right? Like, uh, in, in their own mind, there will be a way of explaining that in terms of rights that makes sense. So the idea is that they're kind of self-defeating when push comes to shove rights language because they're fake. They don't really, like, help us out. They just make us more confused. So that's actually a very interesting critique, I think. Um, maybe I'll, I'll pause there before I introduce another one, Matt. I don't know. What do you think? Uh, how can we sort of problematize rights language um, thinking about these kind of weird like problems that it gets us into. Yeah. Um, I gotta say that, uh, that, that rights are just human fiction is, I mean, true, but I think that's like understating it. Of course. <laughs> like, uh, sure. Rights are a human fiction, but also like it's the human fiction that does carry like an empire behind it. For sure. You know? For sure. Like, uh, it, the, the prompt, the receipt of that fiction is a uh, pretty important. Right. Um, but I, I think like drawing out that it is a social construction is probably a good idea that does complicate it quite a bit. Um, let's see. Uh, Alistair McIntyre. Sure. Um, Karl Marx, he's a guy who has some ideas about human rights. They are kind of interestingly diverse, though. Um, you know, I was just kind of like Googling around a little bit before we, we started recording this. And uh, I, I knew of a few places that Marx talked about rights. 
Um, but I wanted to see like if there are any big hot takes, I guess, or like what are what are people like who are very interested in this kind of thing writing about Karl Marx. And it seems like there's some very interesting anti-communist takes about how Karl Marx is sort of opposed to human rights. And I don't think that's true, just based on my <laughs> what I know about Karl Marx. Uh, I mean, like, you know, um, Marxist has has some ideas, right? He's working through um, political economy. And I don't think Marx is uh, he, he is influenced by liberalism in some ways yeah. and, and liberal political philosophy. Right. It's like undeniably, undeniably the case. Like, how could he not be? Um, but he he wasn't like uh, he didn't believe like rights were inalienable or something. Hence, like, I mean, you can't really be a communist <laughs> and think that uh, the proletariat should overthrow the bourgeoisie. And like you still believe that, like, you have to respect everyone's <laughs> right to property. Right. Those ideas do not go together. They can't. Um, but something that I, I found that was really interesting um, about Marx and sort of the way that he thought about rights um, is in uh, a, uh, a very weird thing that he wrote called Critique of the Gotha Program, which is a very fun thing to read. Um, it's Marx at his most contrarian, which is great. Um, anyways, there there are some bits where it's, it's like the, the whole thing is kind of like critiquing this like other um, this other communist program. And what you end up getting is Marx disagreeing vehemently. And then also just like you get like a bunch of like really thrown together like ideas or like notes about things. So he has a few things here um, that I think might be kind of interesting to complicate things too uh, about uh, rights and their sort of place in a capitalist society or in a communist society. Um, so some funny, some funny ideas. Um, anyways, so. He, he's uh, talking about rights and, and the important thing about, I mean, rights, something that I think it's kind of we haven't mentioned yet, which is maybe our own problem. But uh, the thing about rights is that they're applied equally to all people. Right. Like that's what makes rights rights. If, if, if not everybody gets them, um, they're hardly rights. But I mean, again, as we all know, the, the material story that happens quite often where some people are excluded um, for extremely racist reasons or imperialistic reasons, all kinds of reasons. But anyways, that's the. The, you know, the foundational idea is that everyone should get them, but okay, they don't. Anyways, so Marx says that under capitalism, of course, nobody has equal rights, really. Uh, you know, you have people who work, you have people who work, and they only, uh, and you have people who own things, the bourgeoisie. Um, the bourgeoisie have um, a lot of rights uh, recognized by the state, the right to property, the right to uh, do all kinds of things. But labor only has the, um, the amount of rights in, in as far as they can uh, produce things. Like, that's kind of like their their spot in the whole thing. So Marx ends up setting up the situation that I think is really important that that rights, uh, equal rights amongst like people, is like limited by uh, class antagonisms. So this is, you know, not all that different than what we've been saying from uh, D'Souza, the D'Souza book, but it, you know, it's important that Marx said it too. <laughs> <laughs> that uh, sh sure you can have equal rights in a capitalist society though you fundamentally cannot because of class antagonisms and in fact the way that uh, equal rights get framed in like the larger you know discourse about politics is is always going to be inflected heavily upon by that say that you know central class antagonism in society so um, of course the bourgeoisie will say all people have have rights here <laughs> but you know what that means is like well some people have more rights than others actually <laughs> so um very interesting uh but um there's a there's one one bit here later in the critique of the Gotha program where mark says um uh it's only after um the horizons of the bourgeois right is crossed out in its entirety that society can inscribe on spanners from each according to her ability to each according to her need 
So, um, which is also a statement about rights, I think, right? Mm -hmm. uh, from each according to your ability to each according to your need is uh, is the guarantee of a type of right. Uh, but you know, it's one that uh, you only get after the bourgeoisie, the the bourgeois rights are sort of swept away into the dustbins of history. Yeah, I mean, so much to be said about Marx and rights, and especially that particular eschatological vision of of communism. I know. Um, I know. <laughs> Pretty uh there's a lot of it. Yeah. Yeah. There's a part of me that wants to say the uh from each according to ability to each according to needs is a rejection of rights language or like a I don't know, overcoming of it, but maybe not. I guess uh, you know, as always, the uh the devil's in the details. But I think um <laughs> we'll we'll come back to that because the the real issue here for all these people, for McIntyre, for D'Souza, for Marx, is basically uh surrounding capitalism, right? Like um, it all kind of hinges on, yes, of course, rights, they're all made up. And so under capitalism, they're totally incoherent, as McIntyre says, like, he's not wrong about that. You know, it's true. Um, for D'Souza, it's example after example of rights being bad because capitalism is bad. And then there we have it for Marx. Uh, before we get, though, to maybe talking about other uses of rights or rights, even in a post-capitalist situation, um, I want to introduce one more kind of complicated voice that I really think is a fun take on rights. Um, it is Simone Weil, who is a really wild French mystic character. It's from a book of hers that I don't really like <laughs> that much. <laughs> but nevertheless, uh, I did read it once and it's pretty fun to read. It's called The Need for Roots. It's like a political philosophy book that she wrote after the Second World War. Um, there's some very cool ideas in it and some extremely weird ones. Um, but one of the very cool ones has to do with rights, I think. And it's actually the very beginning of the book. So she says this uh, in the chapter that's called The Needs of the Soul. Um, she says, The notion of obligations comes before that of rights, which is subordinate and relative to the former. A right is not effectual by itself, but only in relation to the obligation to which it corresponds. And then she goes on to say, uh, an obligation which goes unrecognized by anybody loses none of the full force of its existence. A right which goes unrecognized by anybody is not worth very much. Uh, it makes nonsense to say that humans have, on the one hand, rights, and on the other hand, obligations. Such words only express differences in points of view. The actual relationship between the two is as between object and subject. And I think uh, as we transition into thinking about rights in different ways, uh, it's important to sort of try to contextualize rights differently. You know, one of the big complaints that D'Souza has about rights is that uh, they are totally decontextualized in our language under liberalism. Uh, we just kind of see them as, I don't know, it's a discourse unto itself in some ways. But what I like about what Simone Weil does is she doesn't necessarily throw rights out altogether, but she roots them in this other thing, obligation. Uh, which has its own problems and is full of all kinds of other ab abstractions, I'm sure. Uh, but the idea being that, well, we come into the world with these obligations toward one another, or we find them as we go through the world. And uh, rights are kind of a second order way of trying to mediate those obligations or respond to those obligations or, you know, uh, give some sort of uh, expression to that obligation. And I think that's uh, just uh, a neat cool way from another wild Christian philosopher, well, or pseudo-Christian, I don't know, Simone Weil is a complicated character. <laughs> but uh, one other way of kind of, um, you know, just making making rights more, making rights weirder. I think that's really the key. Rights have to be weird if you're going to get anything done with them. <laughs> Maybe, yeah. 
Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's pretty compelling, though, right? I mean, it is like a, a really Levinasian kind of take on rights. Uh, you know, sort of in the encounter with the other, you feel obliged to sort of answer the call for whatever whatever it is. Or, I don't know. But yeah, I mean, it, it is a, a, an interesting way to frame it. Um, all right, we've taken up a lot of time talking about philosophy as we as we are wont to do on this podcast. Um, but let's talk about social movements for a minute. Maybe we can talk more about that piece of it. Because um, the the D'Souza book, uh, Marx, I don't know. I don't know if I can say the same thing for, for Simone Weil and, uh, and Alistair McIntyre. But the first two, at least, are pretty interested in, in social movements and political movements. Um, so, Dean, as a, as a social movement kind of person, um, I don't know. Like, how does this impact the way that you, like, think about doing that type of work? Yeah, I think that is what attracted me to the D'Souza book, especially... I'm trying to figure it out. Um, I think when you're in a social movement or you're, you're around them, you you naturally kind of see these conflicts come up, right? Like uh, on the one hand, you're talking about the human rights of land defenders in Honduras or something, you know, and, and you want to you want to call out the Honduran government and its failure to respect human rights or environmental rights or whatever the rights might be. Um, but you kind of know in the back of your mind that like the government is going to have a way of talking about those things that renders it inoperative. You know, it's going to say, right. oh, we we do respect human rights. We have all these other rights-based approaches. Um, sure. And so you're kind of always like, well, am I really invoking a language that's effective or a language that speaks to what I actually want to express, uh, which is not necessarily uh, to assert a human right, but to say, stop, you know, evicting these people, right? It's not a, it's the D'Souza thing. I don't want to say they have a right to the land. I want to say they are on the land and they belong there. You know, you can't kick them off. It's a different kind of demand. Um, so I think there's something compelling about that and I'm into it. I'm here for it. Uh, if you if you can ever avoid it, you should try to make the stronger moral claim, I think. But at the same time, because we live in a rights-based world in a language way, even if not in reality, it's important to also leverage human rights uh, when you can, and people do it all the time. Uh, there's a really interesting chapter also in D'Souza's text where she talks about rights and accountability, and she has this sort of, you know, lots of different examples where she'll say, in liberalism, the the liberal order functions on the assumption that, like, not only do you have rights that are granted, but if somebody violates those rights, they can be punished. And that's the job of the state. So the state is there to make sure that your rights are all in order and so on. And, you know, you can hold people accountable by by bringing those rights into court or whatever. Um, and, you know, like sometimes it works. Sometimes you bring them into court and like the rights that a judge decides that your rights were violated and you win. Uh, sometimes you bring it into court and the judge decides your rights were not violated and you lose, right? So it's this kind of really strange back and forth. Um, she thinks, I think, that uh, doing that is still worthwhile. I mean, she's a lawyer. She has a, a really fantastic postscript in this book where she's basically like, how do you write an entire book uh, about why human rights are not sufficient when your your day job is like literally representing people's human rights in court? <laughs> it's, it's really good. It's like a couple pages. You should read it. But uh <laughs> I think for social movement work, it's kind of the same challenge, right? It's to say, yeah, we live in a world where, like, you know that under capitalism, not every human rights case that ever goes to court is going to work out the way that it should work out for justice to really emerge in the world. Like, we shouldn't be naive about that. 
But at the same time, like you might get somewhere sometimes with them. So you just kind of have to like treat them as a tool. I think that's that's at least where I've landed on it. Like human rights. Yeah, they're fake. We made them up for sure. But we're all kind of playing that game right now. And until we can, you know, build a different world, that's just the the game that we have to kind of like figure out how to take advantage of and uh, leverage where we can. Yeah, I think that's a pretty good way to put it. Um, one thing that the D'Souza book does, I think that kind of draws out why it is important to make these more like these stronger moral claims Um in, in the book, she really relies on these like pretty good in-depth examples about um, indigenous activists or like national liberation movements. And I think those are both pretty powerful examples of like of, of making those moral claims. Right. Like, um, you know, it's it's not that like, like you said a minute ago, it's not like some, it's it's not like the, the land should actually just belong to somebody else or something. But it's like nobody should be able to own the right to this land or, or no one should be able to like, um, you know, own, own this water that like so many different communities actually rely upon. You know, it's like, um, it's just that, uh, the observation that like there is such a thing as a common good and it does exist in the world and rights don't always, you know, respond to that common good. And, and it's really complicated. So I, I don't know, like it is, it is easy to always fall back on, on rights-based language, especially in activist spaces, because like that's where you have legal power or like some kind of lever to pull. But um, I think it does uh, help us all to kind of think through the, I mean, if, if not for nothing else, just the uh, imaginative aspect of like, there's something bigger going on here than just like, you know, what, what somebody might say in a court or, or whatnot. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, Dean, like you said a minute ago, like, I, I don't know, it is a tool in, in the old toolbox to, to, you know, um, to engage with those things whenever it comes to those types of tools that like you know the tools that you know that you have but you don't necessarily want to use always I always think of this quote from this German media theorist who's like pretty obscure um, called Hans Magnusenzenberger when it comes to when it comes to media he has this great line about um, you know of course um, we we think that we're too good for it we we don't want to use media to like spin propaganda or to like get people on our side in terms of like PR or something. But when it comes to those types of things, you have to be like a sewer man, like a, a guy that works in the sewers. You can't be afraid to touch the shit. And uh, sometimes you just have to use the tools uh, at your disposal, even if you don't really like them very much. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And at the same time, too, it's like uh, when we look at where rights have been deployed in progressive ways, I think there are also some pretty legitimate gains. You know, obviously, there's tons of obvious ones, right? Whatever. The civil rights struggle in the United States had its own limitations, but also, you know, it got people somewhere for sure and is important and so on. But I think, too, of like... Uh, like in Bolivia, the plurinational state and the constitution, there are all kinds of interesting rights conversations that are sort of hashed out, I guess, in that political text. There are rights granted to the earth in that kind of constitution. That's a very interesting way of thinking about rights language. Um, in Cuba, I remember reading uh, Fidel and Religion, and uh, Fidel was talking about like the right to religion and how that's a, he calls it an inalienable right, I think, in that text. Right. So there's a way that uh, if we sort of allow our imaginations to to uncouple rights from liberalism and uncouple them from capitalism, yeah. it's like, OK, well, then what would rights mean in a different political economy? Maybe they would be different. And of course, Maybe there are also other ways of thinking about being together that aren't dependent on rights or are rooted more in mm-hmm. obligation or are, you know, totally outside of that contractual relationship. But still, 
there's also no denying that you know some of our some of our problematic faves <laughs> or some of our <laughs> our socialist heroes and so on have have decided to make rights language uh, a, a yeah. sort of terrain of struggle. I think that it's good pointing those things out too, like um, or or even like in uh, shoot. Oh, in George Chikorell Maher's book, uh, Creating the Communes, there, there's a lot of, um, you, you know, from Chavez, there's a lot of these ideas where rights are actually really important. I mean, I mean, of course they are, <laughs> especially being like a democratically elected socialist. Um, but but in in the case of the communes and in Venezuela, it's like um, a constitution was formulated uh, that requires um, it, it requires not just like not not it doesn't just give you the right to participate it like requires that communes do exist mm-hmm. and like it kind of like, you know, the government ends up being sort of like the fabric that knits all those communes together. So it, it's like using rights in a, in a way that is um, less, less bourgeois than others for sure. Yeah. I mean, pretty good. I think. Yeah. Or, you know, you think too about like intentional interventions into rights conflicts, I guess, to put it this way, I'm thinking of like in Brazil, uh, the MST, the landless workers, right? What what they do is they go around, they find these big pieces of land that are not being um, used, that some landowner is just kind of sitting on or whatever, and they start working the land. And uh, for years, this was a huge point of tension and violence. And, you know, a bunch of farmers show up, they squat the land and work it. And then the landowner shows up and says, you can't be here or like, uh, hey, thanks for making this land productive. Now you have to go away <laughs> and I'll I'll hire somebody to make money off of it for me, right? And then there'd be a, a conflict. So when uh, the Workers' Party was in power in Brazil before Bolsonaro, uh, there was uh, a law that said, basically it sided with the, uh, the MST, the landless workers, under a number of conditions. But the idea is that if they squatted on some land, made it productive and so on, they would actually have the right to the land over and against the rich landowner who wasn't doing anything with the land at all, was just kind of letting it sit around. And that is like an extremely funny kind of intervention into rights discourse, right? Uh, the, the landowner has the legal title to the land. They have the property right to the land. But in failing to sort of exercise that right in a way that, you know, might be used for the common good, let's say, and on the other hand, the MST sort of succeeding in uh, making that land useful for the common good and not just sitting around, uh, that ends up sort of granting them the right to have the, the communal title to it or something. So it's, it's just like a very a funny way of seeing how rights can, I guess, uh, go either way. It all depends on the, the political climate. You know, it's, it's the D'Souza, I think, asks the exact right question, which is basically like, what are rights doing in the world and who do they benefit? Uh, but I think that's the the that also raises some other questions of like, and what if they benefited some other people? <laughs> like, would they mm-hmm. potentially have any use? And I think, you know, there's some examples of it uh, having a little more use for sure. Definitely. Well, OK, um, we've done it, folks. We've reached the 55 minute mark in our <laughs> podcast right now. And let's see, what does that mean? It means that we talked about some things, we made them more complicated and we offered up some possible ways through those complications and uh that's what podcasts do <laughs> and we've and we've done it we've accomplished it we've checked off everything from the list um so dean do you have any closing thoughts or is that uh have we have we have we met our goal here i think that's it i think that's it except uh go look at um <laughs> your favorite social movements website <laughs> and uh think about what they say about human rights i guess that can be your homework 
for the week. Uh, I do it every day, and it's very hard. <laughs> so I could use other people helping me figure it out. Cool. Well, thanks for listening to Magnificast. If you like what you heard, and this time you did, because it was really interesting for me particularly. Uh, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash the Magnificast. You can follow us on Twitter at the Magnificast. We're on Instagram, but I don't really post very much because I just really tired. And that's okay. Um, if you if you do support us on Patreon, though, you uh, can get an invite to our cool Discord server, or you get a secret behind the paywall uh, podcast that Dean and I do where we do some goofs and talk about current events. It's all really great. So you should support us for those reasons. But if you can't, that's fine. Just, you know, just vibe. Just do whatever you need to do. It's cool. Um, great. We'll see you next week. Oh, I'm sorry. One more thing. Our intro music is by Amari Armstrong, and our outro music is by The Illogical Spoon. Uh, okay, now for real. We'll see you next week. I don't want to get up for church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church. We'll meet down by the riverside. There we'll swim with all creation Never get tired, never bored Don't worry, someday There'll be no dam between us and our Lord Jackson, keep your hoods up Keep your hoods up And you stay up late Jackson, keep your hoods up Where you keep your hoods up and you stay up late Oh, don't mind a cold night But might mind if you leave too soon So come on now, it's still early At least I would have